Well, after 107 days, Deb is also out of lockdown and life's returning to some kind of normal. There's a lot of talk and discussion about what clubs should do regarding unvaccinated staff returning to work, particularly given the shortage of staff in the hospitality industry. So today, Deb and Ralph chat to Helen and Richard from HR Workplace Strategies about how clubs and businesses should be approaching this situation. We would also like to thank all of you for the messages and emails regarding our podcast so far. And don't forget to send us any topics you'd like us to tackle or people you'd like us to interview. Also, don't forget to register your club for the Step Forward for Kindness Challenge on 27th of March. And thank you to the many clubs who've already registered. Please welcome Deb and Raf. Good morning and welcome to the Clubs Without Borders Club Talk podcast. And hello to my co-host, Mr. John Rafferty. How are you, Raf? I'm pretty good, Deb. How's things going for you? Yeah, not too badly. Not too badly, my friend. This is our fourth podcast, Raf. It is, and we've had quite a few people listening in, I hear. We have had a lot of people listening in. Which is great, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you to everyone for all the messages and comments since we launched this podcast, and we welcome hearing from you on any topics you would like us to cover in the future. Yes, thanks to everybody who sent messages, and as always, we've been asked to talk about some issues that centre around contracts, so we'll be doing that in the coming weeks. So let's open the bubbles, Raf. After 107 days in lockdown, I've been released. Woohoo! I know. How good is that? Yeah, it's really good. And a welcome to freedom to everyone in Victoria who have done it really, really tough over there. Correct. Raph, a little bit's happened since you and I last spoke. Gladys has stepped down, which we certainly didn't predict. I know. That was a, a big shock to everybody, but she's probably done it in line with the Royal Commission, with ICAC, into her relationship with Daryl Maguire to not put so much pressure on the government at the same time. But after we heard some of the things that came out, but really disappointing for her because she really had the public's interest at heart, you know, and always did a great job as Premier for New South Wales. Yeah, I thought she did a sensational job too, but we'll leave that alone. But I'm surprised I didn't approach you to step up for the position, Raph. Oh, look, they were looking for me, Deb, but they couldn't find me in Coffs Harbour. You know, if they had looked anywhere else, they might have found me. They'd found you on the golf course. Yeah, exactly. They need to talk to me. They're probably waiting for you to step up for Scotty's job. Correct, correct. And, of course, Ras, since our last podcast, I turned 60. I don't know where those years have gone. Um, And certainly, sadly for me, the two weeks that uh, I'd planned to snorkel in far north Queensland and the big birthday bash that we had planned had to be deferred. But as you know, when we interviewed Gus Walland, we launched the Step Forward for Kindness Challenge. So what that's about is I have a view that we need to think a bit harder about how we're treating each other. More and more I'm witnessing people are either attacking each other or just being disrespectful, and it doesn't take much to be kind to somebody. You can't talk about this stuff without putting your own hand up. So for my 60th, I'm going to be walking 60 kilometres to raise awareness and money for Gus Wallen's Gotcha for Life which is a fantastic initiative to talk about mental fitness and reduce the suicide rate in the country. So we've challenged all clubs across Australia to get a team together. And when we're asking you to do is walk 10 kilometres or, you know, if you've got an older team, perhaps you might want to only do five kilometres. That's more than fine. And we're challenging you to join our challenge and step forward for kindness. And let's talk about how we're treating our staff, how we're treating the people around us. You don't have to like everybody. You don't have to sit in a circle and sing kumbaya to everybody but let's just be a bit kinder to everybody so in that regard we've already had some clubs who have kicked off our challenge so I just want to say in advance thank you to Mr Rafferty 
and the CEX Group, who have put in a team and will be walking on the 27th of March. Club Rivers and Paul Miller, thank you very much. Oak Flats Bowling Club and the Illawarra Yacht Club. So thank you to Kimberley and the staff there who have put their hand up to set up a team and will be walking. Coolangatta Surf Club, thank you to their general manager, Steve Edgar, you're a champion. Out at Trundle, Trundle Services Club. And our thanks to their general manager, Adam Hall. Tweed Chai Council have put in a team. Thank you to their general manager and all the guys at Tweed Chai Council. EasyLink Community Transport, which I'm the chair of, they'll be putting in a team. We'll be walking 10 kilometres. Team Beach Mums. Thank you to Carrie Payne, who set up a team for Team Beach Bums, and we'll be walking on the 27th of March. But we've got plenty of spaces available. We've got lots of time. We'd love all the clubs to set up a team. You don't even need to raise money if you don't want to. It's all about thinking about how we're speaking to each other. Let's be kinder to each other. Let's stop ripping each other apart, particularly post-COVID. And let's see if we can't start working on improving people's mental health. So today, Raf, we're talking to Helen Carianis and Richard Tate. We're well known to both of us and, of course, who I work with for many years and are very well known to the club industry. They established H&R Workplace Strategies and are a leading workplace investigations, employment law and mediation specialists. So hello, Helen and Richard. Hello. Uh, Helen and Richard, and it's great to be doing a podcast with you guys, you know, as you are the experts in this area, and we're really pleased to be doing it with you. Thank you. Looking forward to chatting to you both. It'd be good if we're both all in person. It would be, wouldn't it? it? Yeah. Congrats, guys, on the recent nuptials. I can't let that pass. I'll just deny. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Helen, if you can just tap twice if you're being held against your will. (laughs) I might kick it off, Richard and Helen. So how is your business going after the interruptions of COVID-19? And are you finding that a lot of people are confused or uncertain about the future? Look, Raph, the business has stood up pretty well, to be honest, and I probably thank a lot of our club clients in that regard as we've traversed through, I suppose, all the continually changing COVID requirements and announcements together. But our work these days probably just isn't in relation to what we were known as previously in relation to giving advice and advocacy before the courts. These days we do actually a lot of workplace investigations and mediations, and there definitely has been a slowdown in that area, in some sectors in particular. That being said, we've been pretty lucky because we've got a pretty significant footprint in the university sector, councils, health, it's largely been business as normal in, in a lot of those areas. In relation to the second part of your question, are people confused and uncertain? They definitely are. I think a lot of people have really been struggling coming to grips with the changes which seemingly being imposed them on a daily basis and then suddenly changed nearly on a daily basis as well. So I think a lot of people have been struggling in that area, although a lot of people haven't got themselves in any trouble. The ones, our, our clients in particular, are very proactive and just looking at strategies moving forward all the time. So it's been tough for them, but touch wood so far, no one's found themselves in any trouble. Richard and Helen, have you found that there's quite a few people now looking for other opportunities too? You know, like I've noticed it with some people outside the club here that people are already looking to change jobs and looking for other things to do simply because of how COVID has affected them. Well, absolutely, Raph. Actually, a lot of academics and media people are calling this period the great resignation period. You know, people are looking at what other opportunities there are available for them. So I think the big issue for clubs in particular is they need to think pretty strategically about really retaining their staff more than anything. 
because obviously, in our opinion, it's easier to retain staff than it is to go and look for new staff or attract new staff. Yep. Because who would have thought coming out of the pandemic that unemployment would be so low? Because we saw those queues at Centrelink during the start of the pandemic and certainly hospitality struggling to get staff. So how do you think the industry is going to cope with this current staff shortages? Look, I think the industry is struggling, to be pretty frank. It's always been an issue in relation to some of the, the skilled areas, such as chefs. We've always struggled to attract those people. Getting them from overseas has been a lot easier. But it, it's moved a lot wider than that. It is now in every area. The main thing, as I said, is looking at just retaining and making sure that you're offering the appropriate flexibility for staff that they want to stay with you. So, yeah, I'll keep harping on it. Is It's really about retention at the moment. So I think it's going to be harder and harder to attract good employees. Richard, I think you're right in what you say there is that we worked really hard on looking after our chefs during the lockdowns to make sure that they were really looked after because I knew that was one of the fields that you would lose people more quickly than anybody else. So we were actually making sure that we had jobs for them, had work for them to keep them involved and also were flexible with their family lives as well so that we're trying to be really looking after their interests as well as our own. Yep, well, you've done it well. And look, I think other people do need to open their minds in that regard. It is all about flexibility at the moment and working in with people. We've got to be the employers of choice. Are we just going to continue to lose people? Yeah, and it just can't be rhetoric, you know, the employer of choice. You know, I think clubs do it pretty well as a whole in relation to the flexibility that they offer their staff. It's not all about working from home and stuff like that. For some people, that's what they like, but it's very hard in the club industry in that regard. It's providing the flexibility so that people can take time off their jobs for their needs, if they have carers' needs, if your employees are sporting fanatics to allow them to have time off on Saturday to enjoy their sport and just being flexible with all the different people you have working for you. Absolutely. There's a lot of talk and discussion about what businesses should do on 1 December 2021 when the unvaccinated persons are able to work. What is your view on how clubs and businesses should be approaching this situation? You're right, Raf. The unvaccinated are staying purgatory. Actually, a couple of days ago, the date was shifted now to the 15th of December from the 1st or whenever New South Wales hits 95% vaccination rates. And after that time, of course, they can all roam free. There's a misconception that that automatically means that unvaccinated people will be able to work in any industry after that time. And that's not correct. The current public health order mandates that anyone working in a high-risk premises, which includes hospitality venues, must be vaccinated to work. Now, while some vaccinated people might be able to attend these premises after the 15th of December, there's been no indication from the government that the requirement for staff to be vaccinated will be dispensed with. Even if this part of the public health order changes, If you're a business that has a mandatory vaccination policy in place that's reasonable to implement, given the nature of the business, employers can require staff to be vaccinated as a reasonable and lawful directive, regardless of what happens with unvaccinated people post 15 December. So whether you go down the path of mandatory vaccination or you just strongly encourage it, a COVID policy is really critical. Part of the rollout of any policy should include consultation with staff and health and safety committee 
Staff surveys are actually also a really useful way to gauge employee feelings about this. Most clubs we've worked with that have undertaken these surveys have found that the vast majority of employees are actually in favour of mandatory vaccination for all staff. So that's really good. Of course, there's going to be a minority who refuse to vaccinate. Our experience has been that it is actually a minority. Every club will have one or two people, not many more than that. We've seen a number of emails from a small handful of those employees that have quoted mandatory vaccinations as breaching international human rights conventions, the Commonwealth Biosecurity Act. I've even seen arguments that this practice is a breach of the Nuremberg Codes, I kid you not, comparing mandatory vaccinations to the Holocaust. Now, for those who refuse to be vaccinated, where it's mandatory, whether it's mandatory because of a health order or a policy, conversations need to occur with those individuals to explain the consequences of their choices, namely that they won't be able to continue to work for you. And I think for those that persist with their Holocaust analogies, perhaps maybe a gentle reminder that, you know, in the Holocaust, Jewish people were actually murdered. In the pandemic, anti-vaxxers can't go to Kmart. Now, They might believe those two concepts are comparable, but really the difference is actually monumentally huge. (laughs) Correct. And our patrons are also older, so we're putting our patrons at risk because, as I said the other day, despite the fact, for example, my mum is double-vaxxed, she's got dementia, I'm convinced that she still wouldn't survive if she caught COVID. So she's still a massive risk for me. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're factors that are taken into account when you're looking at is a mandatory vaccination policy reasonable, justifiable, given the nature of the business, the people that walk through our doors every day, et cetera? And I agree everybody's entitled to their choice, but it may be that they just choose not to get vaccinated and therefore they choose not to work in hospitality. Yep, that's right. Or you go to a hospitality venue where they don't have a mandatory vaccination policy. Not every hospitality venue will have one of those moving forward if the government doesn't require it. At the moment, it's required until the 15th of December, but we don't know what happens after that date. And it may well be that the rules are relaxed somewhat. And then, yeah, as you say, Deb, you know, your choice. You can keep working here. This is our policy. You don't like it. You can always go and work somewhere else where they don't have it. So really, Helen, the best thing for people to do is follow the New South Wales health policies in place because at present they can't work because of the policy in place by the New South Wales Health Government where hospitality is included, right? Whereas from the 15th of December, if that changes, then they could work, but otherwise they won't be able to work still after that date. Yeah, it really just depends on what happens to that public health order after the 15th of December. But yeah, you're spot on. Yep. So John, have you made a decision on what you're going to do? Have you got mandatory vaccination in your policies? No, what we've done is we're only setting up people who have been double vaccinated to be employed. But what we've got is we're still waiting on that public health order the same way with some of the people who are unvaccinated. Uh, We've got some people who work in areas that aren't as high risk as other areas of the club. We're just playing it by ear, as Helen said, until the 15th of December and see what the public health order says. And that will be what our choice is. At the moment, those people are on annual leave. We've been talking to them about getting vaccinated and doing all the things that you've spoken about. And that could be the end result for us is we actually terminate their services. But this is a process we're going through at the moment. 
I've been following the case of Sarah versus G and Sarah Proprietary Limited, RAF, which is the case where the employer was found liable when an employee contracted COVID in the course of his employment and subsequently died. Now, this gentleman went overseas, caught COVID in America, very sadly passed away, and they sued the employer, which has now set a precedent, and the employer was found to be liable for that death. Is that right, Richard? I can answer that because I'm all over the case. This is the first known COVID-19 case to be determined by a tribunal or a court in Australia. So a key issue in the case was actually proving that the virus was an injury which arose out of or in the course of employment. So as Deb's just mentioned, the employee caught COVID on a work-related trip to the US and died there. The insurer who was arguing against the case and against liability being granted was trying to argue that the employee could have caught COVID during social interaction and that he was performing work for the US-based company, not the Australian company, which was the insured, and therefore there was no liability. Now, the New South Wales Personal Injury Commission disagreed and found that it was the Australian company that actually paid the employee's wages, not the US company, so that was a factor taken into account. Then on reviewing when the deceased symptoms first occurred, who he had contact with and whether they had tested positive, the commission established that the employee contracted COVID-19 between boarding his flight in Sydney and arriving at his hotel in New York, which was work-related travel and thus in the course of his employment. So that was the reasoning behind awarding the damages the applicant was actually awarded the death benefit of $834,200, weekly payments for the period of time that the deceased was ill and unable to work, and medical expenses valued at some $11 million pursuant to the provisions of the Workers' Compensation Act. So pretty substantial liability there. But that was the rationale because they were able to specifically pinpoint the time that they believe he contracted COVID, which was during work-related travel. There are some statistics that were run by Safe Work Australia in May this year where they said, look, there's been in total as of May, so been a bigger number now, 1,222 COVID-related workers' compensation claims lodged and 974 of those were actually accepted. So it's a very high percentage, it's 80%. Yep. Now, when we look at those statistics, we can't ignore the fact that the New South Wales government last year introduced legislation for essential service workers that automatically presumes they contracted COVID-19 in the workplace if they catch it. So it's for people like hospital workers, hospital workers. for example. Funnily enough, of those statistics I've just mentioned, the majority were actually not hospital workers. They were actually supermarket workers, also classified as essential service workers. So the fact that there's an automatic presumption there has probably contributed to the number of accepted workers' comp claims. This automatic presumption, however, does not apply to hospitality workers. So we're expecting at the present time in the current environment, it will be more difficult for hospitality workers to claim compensation for catching COVID at work. But it does remain to be seen what will happen post-15 December if 
businesses intend to remove restrictions on unvaccinated employees or people coming into your business without taking additional precautions. It'll be very much suck and see approach post 15 December, I think. Yeah, Helen, in that situation where you're talking about is there's a number of people who, a lot of those cases were in Victoria, in excess of 800 were in Victoria for those safe work okay. places. Yep. But, but one of the issues is Section 19B of the Workers' Comp Act, which it now has that the person claims that they have caught COVID at your business and the business now has to prove that they didn't get it at our business. Whereas before, the claim has always been they can make the claim and then they have to prove it themselves. We now have to prove that they didn't get it. So it's sort of been changed with that wording in Section 19B of the Workers' Comp Act. So there's a bit of a problem for that moving forward for all businesses because we're dealing with a virus, which isn't like a work injury that somebody else would have caught. Yeah, 100%. When you reverse the onus of proof onto the employer, it does make it a lot more difficult for the employer to defend their position, absolutely. So yep. that, that is a problem when legislation does that. And thankfully, the reverse onus doesn't apply across all areas of employment law, otherwise employers would be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, plus in that other case you spoke about with the person who contracted COVID on the plane, right, and you went through the enormous cost, particularly if you're in the American hospital system. But seeing he died, have they then processed to the next stage where a head of that organisation who he was employed by has been charged with manslaughter, which they can actually do under workers' comps? I'll jump in there. It's a really interesting case because he was the head of the organisation. He was the director. Oh, really? Yeah, so it, it was a very small business, similar yep. to what myself and Helen have set up. So both directors, I think he was a director with his wife, and he'd worked for an American company as well. So would subcontract into an American company. So really what it was, was his wife or the estate claiming against their workers' comp insurance. Yep. So, yeah, that scenario didn't play out in that one. Yep. But that, that can definitely be the scenario, though, Richard, can't it, you know, moving forward? Because it's no different, really, when you line it up like asbestos for the construction industry. It's potential. It's potential yep. for that to occur. I think particularly if as an employer you have not demonstrated that you've taken all possible precautions to prevent the injury or illness from occurring from a work health and safety perspective. And that's why, you know, setting up a health and safety committee is good practice to have in place anyway, but particularly during this COVID phase, constant consultation, looking at ways you can improve your mitigation of these risks occurring. It's all part and parcel of being able to demonstrate to a regulator, if you ever challenge, that you took all reasonable steps to prevent it from occurring. And really then, Helen, what you're saying is it should be a topic that is mentioned at every workplace health and safety meeting. You know, like our staff, once a month, we have a workplace health and safety meeting. It's reported to the board every month and they should actually follow through with actually making sure there's something done about COVID at every one of those meetings. Absolutely. Whilst this issue is still alive and it's definitely alive, at least for the foreseeable future, it should be an agenda item at every meeting. Yep. I agree with that, but you'd be surprised, Raph, and I know you have one, but you'd be surprised how many clubs don't have work health and safety committees. 
Unfortunately, some smaller clubs wouldn't because of the numbers of employees before you actually have to have a committee. But it's ridiculous for anybody who's in a situation where they need to have a workplace health and safety committee that they don't. And really in today's time to even have somebody who is designated to look after that committee and look after that area, because even when you're trying to get people back from workers' comp, it's the right process to get back. You can minimise the actual cost of the business and you can actually helping the employee to get them back to work. Absolutely. So shout out to all directors. Work health and safety should be an agenda item every month. Absolutely. And as yep. should your position on COVID, absolutely. Helen and Richard, with your discussions with business, what are the major challenges for employers in the future? Look, I think the main one, in my opinion, is staff shortages, as we've spoken about. Look, I think once our international borders open up, that's going to be the first step. But I think employers need to start lobbying government to make it easier for skilled as well as unskilled workers to obtain visas into the country and to reduce the red tape for employers in this area. So, look, I think that's the main thing moving forward is the shortages of all staff. And we touched on it before, you know, seeing a greater emphasis and change with the relation to health and well-being of employees and the, the facilitation of better work-life balance for people. You know, like we have EAP programs and a number of programs to help our staff. And I was really concerned about the mental health side of people with shutdowns. And even the second shutdown, I think, was even worse for people. You know, and I really feel sorry for the Victorians because of the amount of on-again, off-again situations they've been through. How are you finding that with the different organisations dealing with? Look, it's still amazing that a lot of clubs actually still don't have an EAP program in place. You know, that's nearly the first port of call these days to show that, you know, you take mental health seriously and, and can assist them in, in that area. I suppose you've got to look at this from a holistic approach. As I said earlier, I think clubs are very good in relation to flexible arrangements to help their staff, but it's about looking at really understanding what the staff want. What do they want from their employer? And I think the great danger for a lot of employers is that they assume that they want X and Y. I think they need to be always asking staff and anonymous surveys, as Helen indicated previously, I think it's that perfect opportunity to get feedback from staff. What is important for them? I've seen so many employers, ones that I've worked for as well, that just assume all they want is a good Christmas party or X or Y. But when you really talk to them, there's other factors involved with what they're seeking from an employer. No, I think it's really important for employers to know who your people are who work for you because everybody has different needs, you know, and, you know, once upon a time, you know, employers used to think wages was the most important thing for people, but when they did surveys, it never rated higher than five. It's all the other things that you actually do and how you can help people. And, you know, and even our employers need to actually start to understand, know who your staff are, know who the people are when you're talking to them so that they actually get a greater experience from dealing with the managers because the managers know who they are. Recognition from your manager can mean so much to some people. We all want to be wanted, right? We all want to be cared about. We want to be recognised. This is not rocket science. Oh, absolutely. Everyone loves praise. Look, I'm still waiting for praise from my director here, but um, <laughs> one, one day I'm sure I'll get it. And that's probably the reason. I've got a bit of Stockholm syndrome, so that's why I stay here. But you know, for other businesses, I think praise is one of the first requirements that good managers should always be considering. And I know we've all seen it, but culture in some of these organisations and clubs, some clubs, I just sit there and shake my head. The culture is so poor. 
Uh, and culture's got to be also an agenda item, right? Deb, you're spot on. Culture's the most important thing. Generally starts from the top and cascades down. That's actually the fun part that we actually enjoy about our business these days is that for a lot of other businesses and one or two clubs, but for a lot of other businesses, we actually get engaged through culture reviews. So they are so much better to do than workplace investigations, which is reactive stuff. Yeah. Uh, a lot of businesses look at cultural reviews to be proactive. So you go into a department or a business and talk to all the staff anonymously, so in confidence, so they can say whatever they want to do and assess, give a temperature gauge to the board or the GM or, or the manager in the department, how the culture is viewed and then make recommendations how to improve that culture. And clubs that sort of take that proactive approach will do very well because a lot of the time the board or the general manager is not aware of a lower level manager or a difficult member of staff that has become quite cancerous in their dealings with other staff and people leave and they won't always tell people higher up the food chain why they left. And in an environment where it's quite easy to go down the road and pick up another job, people go, oh, I'm not going to put up with this sort of toxic behaviour. I'm just going to go and work for somebody else. Absolutely, Richard. And, and some of the things, though, that people should realise when you're looking at your culture is how many workers' comp claims do you have? How much sick leave do people take? Why can't you retain good people when they come into your organisation? Because the good people can go and get another job. That's the reason why, and they should be looking at all those things. But to do a review, as you say, it's always pertinent to get an outside organisation in because then the people don't feel threatened and they have the confidence and trust that those people will listen to what they're telling them rather than if they're doing it internally, people go, well, why tell them it's never changed, nothing's ever happened? They fear for their jobs, Raf. That's the problem. Absolutely. They do fear for their jobs sometimes and it's done internally. It also sends a strong indication that the employer is not rhetoric. They're actually taking it seriously. They're spending money on an external organisation coming in and doing a proper review. So there's obviously intent to make changes. And what employees love is that their voice is heard. They want to be heard. And I find as well when we do our cultural reviews, as soon as you reassure staff that they will be anonymised for the purposes of the report, they speak very freely. And that's where I'm talking about with the trust, Helen, you know, from an organisation from outside. If they trust that organisation to keep their anonymity, they'll actually give you the information you need for the business to grow, you know, so the business can move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I know investigations do still account for about 50% of your business. So should clubs do their own investigations, or I think I know the answer to this, bring in somebody independent? Great question. Workplace investigations can be conducted internally particularly when an issue is not serious and the employer has the internal resources and appropriate human resource management expertise with the time to actually conduct a professional and procedurally fair workplace investigation. The danger with internal investigations is that they're prone to perceptions of bias and most HR managers we deal with simply don't have the time to run them internally because they are very labour intensive. So that's the position on internals. As a guide, the more serious the alleged conduct, the more senior the alleged offender, and the greater the potential for challenge in the courts, increases the likelihood that an external investigation is more appropriate in the circumstances. 
But you've really got to have regard to, even for those lower level matters, do you have the resources in-house to do this? And is it a waste of time if the employee is going to think it's biased anyway? Basic common sense. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And, and employees can't refuse to be in the investigation. And an employee should be suspended during the investigation if it's about that employee for three days, give them opportunity to actually answer the charge, give them the charge so that they know what it is for what they're being investigated for. So everybody understands what the situation is. You operate with proper procedural fairness. You're right, Raph. An employee can't really refuse to take part in an investigation. It's a reasonable and lawful directive to participate. With suspension, yes, very good practice. Three days is a good time frame if you need to go down that path. But before you make the decision whether you suspend or not, it really depends on the circumstances because normally when you're suspending, you are paying the employee to be off work and a solid investigation might take a couple of weeks to turn around and that would be at its quickest. So, you know, you don't want to pay somebody to sit at home for two weeks unless you absolutely have to. So the key factor there to consider is whether the allegations are of a serious enough nature to warrant termination if they were proven. If the answer is yes, then you should definitely suspend the employee. Yep, exactly. I think people have to be a bit careful as well, just going straight down the investigation path. There can be minor complaints as well, as Helen sort of alluded to there. And sometimes I think it's best not to, it might be damaging our business in a bit of ways, is automatically head down an investigation path. It well might just be discussion with the individuals and an expectation of what the business expects in relation to the complaints that have been made. And with workplace investigations, they do become quite adversarial. So it pushes people into corners. So you've got to consider what happens at the back end of it. So maybe instead of going down that path, it might be sensible to look at mediating between the parties, something Helen does quite a bit at. She's an accredited mediator. I think she's managed to get every one of her ones across the line. But I just think it's sometimes a better approach to try and rectify things before people are pushed into corners and have to come out swinging. Absolutely. I've been talking to some staff myself recently, and it all starts at the top, right? Communication at the top. So they understand what's expected of them. Once they understand... They can talk it through with whatever the issue is, but there's no communication from the top until it goes horribly pear-shaped and then you're either in, as you said, investigations or mediation stage. Even with mediations, basically what happens at the end of a mediation is the parties agree how they're going to conduct themselves between each other. And what happens with the ones that we do is that they will agree these are the steps that we're going to follow. If we've got an issue, we'll raise it with the person directly. If we aren't able to do that, we'll take it to the next person. So they agree of how they're going to interact with each other and they sign a document and then you hold them to account to that document moving forward. So there are a lot of other mechanisms than just workplace investigations and then telling them this is what you've done, this is the outcome sort of thing. Well, Richard, also, though, clubs should have a robust staff appraisal system in place so that they're continually appraising the staff, where a lot of these matters should be talked about at that time, right? So if you've got a problem with that individual, so it's not the serious nature one that really where I was leading to with the suspension of time. You're already on top of that before you get there. So that the only matters then you're really dealing with are the more serious matters, you know, so that where somebody has done something illegally or they've contravened the policy so badly that you need to go down that path. 
I agree with you with the appraisals. That's sort of nearly 101 that still a lot of people don't do. But the best managers, they won't leave it to the appraisal period either. They'll know their staff. They'll be talking to their staff all the time. They'll be gauging what are their issues, have they got conflict with somebody or whatever, and assessing this the whole way through. And then it doesn't become so daunting, the appraisal system, because the appraisal system can be quite daunting for some managers and some employees if they've left everything till then to address areas of concern from either party's perspective. So I still reiterate the best managers will always be talking to their staff and understanding what are the issues there for them, both in their professional and personal life. It makes it a lot easier then once you get to the appraisal time. And it become, does become a little bit more of a tick and flick in that regard because both parties will know where they sit and what they want. Absolutely, Richard. It's no different to what I talk to the staff about with responsible service of alcohol, you know, is when people are coming to your venue and they start to have a few drinks, you know, it's going and speaking to them early before you get to them too late. Yes. And it's the same with staff, you know, is if you're allowing that behaviour to continue over a period of time before you only talk to them at a staff appraisal, the person thinks what they're doing is correct, right? So you have to monitor that all the time to ensure that you're keeping the people on the right track of where they're going. And it's a lot better when it's informal for a lot of people. So they actually accept what you're trying to get across to them to move forward. Absolutely. And you feel you've got a connection with that person. If you're talking to them, asking about how did you go at cricket or football on the weekend or what did you do on your weekend, just simple questions like that just indicates you've got a bit of a connection with them. It always helps. All about communication and caring about people. Absolutely. And certainly when they leave, right, if somebody chooses to leave your organisation, wish them well and let them go. You've heard me speak on a number of occasions and I always leave with the one message every time. If somebody leaves you, no matter what they've done, allow them to leave with as much dignity as possible. Don't go chasing them down rabbit holes. Don't go chasing them into their next job because that can often come back to haunt you as, as we're sort of watching playing out with our ex-employer, Deb. Always allow people to leave with dignity and allow them to go and get another job. Exactly. And let's face it, a lot of people we train go on to get bigger and better careers. And that's a great indication of our industry. Well, how rewarding is it to watch people that you've helped mentor or whatever go on to bigger and better careers than what we have? That's great. That is great. I agree. Richard, what you say is correct. There's the best situation is to both parties to leave with a win-win situation, you know, is that if you're not happy with that person to be in your employment and you come to the arrangement where the person is moving on, you don't need to tear them to strips when they go. You actually hope that they can learn from the experience they had with you and then move forward into another role and actually go and improve themselves or find a vocation they're more suited to. Absolutely. And even if they go to a competitor, they're not in your business. That's Correct. what you wanted. You wanted them out of your business. So they're going to a competitor and you don't think they're that great. Just let it be. Let them have a new opportunity in life, as you say, and start afresh. Couldn't agree more. Life is too short to go after people. Absolutely. You guys got any interesting investigations or cases you want to tell us about without naming names? Look, all our cases are pretty interesting, which is why we love what we do because we never have the same day twice. But one case in particular comes to mind because it really serves as a good reminder to Richard that as a male employee, his working conditions aren't so bad compared to what these poor blokes went through. So there was a club-related investigation about four years ago 
It involved a female employee making some very serious sexual harassment allegations against a co-worker. She was an aspiring actress working as a casual club worker and she had an Indian background and she had made claims against an Indian co-worker. Richard undertook that investigation and most of the allegations were unsubstantiated with the exception of a minor incident which related more to unprofessional conduct of the manager rather than a sexual harassment incident. Then we fast-track two years later. I receive a call from another club to undertake an investigation into a number of very serious sexual harassment allegations against a duty manager. It was an Indian female employee who was an aspiring actress against an Indian duty manager. I'm sitting there going, hmm, this sounds very familiar. It was the same employee at a different club. Now, this club had undertaken an internal investigation, which the employee was not satisfied with because the allegations were not substantiated in the internal investigation. So this female employee asked the club to engage an external investigator, and that's why I got a phone call. In the meantime, she'd also engaged an ambulance chaser lawyer, let's call him Jake the Snake, and he commenced proceedings in the Australian Human Rights Commission for sexual discrimination. So this was all going on at the same time. Now, I undertook the investigation into the sexual harassment allegations. They were very serious, as I said, and also found that absolutely none of it was substantiated. This poor guy, he was so distressed, the one who the accusations were made against. He had a young family at home. He took a lot of pride in his career at the club. And there were a lot of concerns that the complaint was frivolous and vexatious. I didn't find in the end that it was frivolous or vexatious because it came out in the evidence that this woman was suffering from pretty severe mental health issues and she genuinely believed that she was being harassed. It was very sad because the lawyers that she retained actually kept pushing her down the litigation path, which was impacting her mental health quite significantly. And I heard that in between all of the court dates, she was being hospitalised in psychiatric wards and things like that. And yet those lawyers kept pushing her down the path to try and increase the settlement monies. The matter ultimately did settle. I think the club made a ethical conscience choice rather than a principled choice to keep fighting it to really assist that employee move on. But I think the wrap-up message with this case is that mental health issues actually underpin many of our investigations and it's really important to approach these kind of matters in a really sensitive, empathetic way whilst also having regard to the person on the receiving end of the allegations and offering them support because it can be extraordinarily difficult for somebody who has not done the wrong thing to face allegations of these kinds. And I know the mental health stuff, Deb and Rafi, you've spoken to Gus Warland about not long ago, so it's an area that you guys are quite familiar with, but it is something to be aware of because it is quite prevalent. Helen, you know, what you say with mental health in that area is there's a lot of people who have low self-esteem, you know, and the biggest place that they come and they do really well is when they come to work. They put the mask on and when they come forward, they do a great job at your employment, but they suffer 
that underlying self-esteem problems for them, which really haunts them long-term, that mental health. And that's why we have to work really closely with trying to help those people at all costs. You're 100% right. This female employee I just spoke about, she was one of those employees. She used to come to work with a full face of theatrical makeup every time she was rostered on. The whole bit was always telling people about her acting auditions and trying to encourage people to follow her on Instagram and all these social media sites that she was on. But it was really quite sad. For, For people that are interested in how many cases do we find bullying and harassment and sexual stuff has actually occurred in the investigations. It's about a 50% split of our cases where we make findings that actual bullying or harassment has occurred. The other half are normally reasonable management action where a manager is just simply trying to performance manage someone who does not accept that there is a problem with their performance or poor management styles that don't quite meet the threshold for bullying, but the other person has perceived they've been bullied. Every case on its merits and it's a minefield, but nobody wins in the case that you've just talked about. It's very sad, really, for everybody involved, including the people who are accused. I say to clubs all the time, avoid an expensive court battle at all costs because, with great respect, guys, the only people that win out of that are the lawyers. So they just need to be proactive with their policies and procedures and, of course, their training. But when there is an incident, be open-minded, review all the facts and just don't jump to conclusions about innocent and guilt. I know the Harvey Weinstein case ignited a global reckoning about power and workplace harassment. And then what we all know became known as the hashtag MeToo movement. Millions of women in particular shared their stories and hundreds of men stepped down and lost their jobs. And from someone who started their career in the male-dominated banking industry. I've seen my share of prejudices and abuse of power and position. So in that regard, Harvey's case shone a spotlight on issues that absolutely needed to be addressed. But having said that, the road to progress is a bumpy one, and I have some concerns that some people took this movement too far. And in cases like you've just raised, Helen, there are false allegations that can destroy people, yet the hashtag MeToo movement at one stage almost became about men being assumed guilty until proven innocent. So that's my only concern about Harvey's case, but certainly there was a lot of upside to Harvey Weinstein's case that raised issues that needed to be addressed, certainly in your field. Yeah, mud sticks. I think that's what Helen was alluding to in relation to the case that she just raised with the poor manager that hadn't done anything in that regard. You know, they're terrible accusations to have thrown against you. I think the mud rightfully stuck with Harvey Weinstein. Um, but we were sort of quite grateful to him because that's when we roughly started our business and uh, it moved everything in that sphere to show how liable employers were. And as I sort of said, I think I said earlier, is that we actually prior to that hadn't really set up our business with the indication of doing workplace investigations or cultural reviews. It was just continued on the same line of advice and advocacy. but. With Harvey and the Me Too movement and everything like that, employers have shown that they have to take proactive steps in that regard or do proper investigations. So in some very small ways, I'm actually quite thankful for Harvey. But apart from that, I don't think there's too much to thank that fellow for, including a lot of the uh, films he used to make. Really, though, as an employer, you shouldn't even be entering the person's private space. You know, you shouldn't be touching people. It's not the thing that unwanted people touching, even, you know, putting an arm around someone, you know, like people used to do it years ago. But that's proven that a lot of times that 
people were cringing under that sort of behaviour. You know, I don't believe it's anything that anybody should be doing and all leaders of their organisation should be leading by example that they are the ones who don't do it. Absolutely. So, Richard and Helen, what areas do you believe business should focus on as we transition out of COVID so we move forward in the future? Look, probably just what what I spoke about before, I think it is all about staff retention at the moment. That's the big issue. Your vaccination policies and everything like that, we've spoken about that. But I think that the big issue moving forward is just ensuring that you have the best possible people working for your business and that they're as engaged they possibly can be. That's great. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. How can clubs contact you if they want to discuss these issues further? Always love to talk to clubs. Probably just best jump on the web, look up H&R Workplace Strategies. Our website's pretty simple. It's hrws.com.au. So we'd love to talk to more clubs. It's still the industry we love the best. Absolutely. It's not a better industry. Well, thanks, guys. We might chat to you later in the year again. Sounds fantastic. We'd love to. Yeah, look forward to it. We'll do it in person next time. And it's been great chatting to you both. Always very insightful in this area that clubs need to focus on more than anything else because managing your people is really what the business is all about. Yep. Staff are the number one asset of every club, so we should not forget that. Always will be. All right, guys, thank you. No worries. See you, guys. See you, Helen. See you, Richard. Thanks. Bye. 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 Folks, that's it for our fourth podcast. Thank you to everybody for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you to Helen and Richard for giving up their time today. And thank you to my co-host, the ever-famous Mr. John Rafferty. You would have heard Raf's phone go off at the beginning of that podcast. That was Bonville Golf Course calling him to find out where the hell he was. So Raf's probably on the golf course as we speak. And thank you for all the positive comments and emails that Raf and I have received. They're greatly appreciated. We're happy to be doing this podcast. We're having a bit of fun along the way. So don't hesitate to send us any topics you'd like us to cover or anyone you'd like us to speak to. We've received a lot of emails about talking about contracts, ATM contracts, of course, in particular, but contracts is my passion. So we will be doing one on contracts shortly. But in the meantime, if you're having a problem with an ATM agreement, or if you're not sure about an ATM agreement or any supply agreement, really, just give me a call or send me a copy of the agreement before you sign. And don't be coerced into signing anything you don't understand. But we will be discussing that in the coming podcasts. Have a lovely day, guys. Take care. Be safe. And we look forward to seeing you all or talking to you all soon. Take care. Bye.